Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. And I'm Shannon Bond. Shannon, in search of divine inspiration for this podcast, uh, I'd like to start with a passage from the New Testament. We're going somewhere interesting, folks. <laughs> yes, we are. The passage is this. It's from the Epistle to the Hebrews, author unknown. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You've heard this one before, right, Shannon? I think on the West Wing. The West Wing, that's right. The Aaron Sorkin uh, drama, The West Wing, had an episode titled The Evidence of Things Not Seen. If you prefer the deeper literary waters of James Baldwin, he also wrote an essay uh, with that title in the 1980s. Uh, Here's why I want to talk about this passage, though, because it seems to me like the evidence of things not seen is like a ghost that constantly stalks or haunts. Ghosts don't stalk you. They, they, They haunt they haunt you. Okay. It's like the ghost that constantly haunts all efforts to gain solid economic knowledge, right? Economics is really hard because there's no way to look at the counterfactual, especially macroeconomics, right? right? Um, It's very difficult to know when one variable changes exactly how it was that it influenced the trajectory of the world after it changes. Right. Because we're not doing like controlled experiments. You're just sort of seeing what actually plays out with policy decisions. You're seeing what plays out. And more to the point, you don't get to see what would have played Mm -hmm. out if that variable hadn't been changed. So if you raise taxes and the economy keeps going fine, it doesn't mean that raising taxes was what caused it. Uh, It just means that the economy did well after the fact, right? right? And then you have to look for ways of isolating the variable. You have to use all kinds of econometric techniques. And all of these techniques, all of our efforts to try to solve this problem of the counterfactual are flawed. You know, they can be helpful, they can be powerfully suggestive, but they're flawed. Okay. I want to talk about uh, the minimum wage now. I can shift gears just a little bit, but I promise it's related. Okay. What's happening now is that a lot of localities in the US are shifting to a $15 an hour minimum wage. This is way above what the minimum wage is in a number of these localities. And we're not exactly sure what the effects are going to be because a lot of the uh, economic research to this point shows that a modest increase in the minimum wage to some share of the median wage, okay, don't worry about what that means, uh, tends to have a very uh, kind of negligible employment effect. In other words, unemployment doesn't go up if the minimum wage goes up moderately, okay? Right, right. But 15- Basically, people don't have to, employers don't have to then lay off people because- their expenses are too high or they have to just look for cheaper ways to get their work done. That's exactly right. Or they won't hire as many people in the first place right. or they'll invest in machinery that can do the job of low-skilled laborers you know, instead of hiring them. So we don't know exactly what's going to happen, but I'm wondering if uh, this is going to provide uh, a, at least a useful experiment over the next, say, 10 years where we combine the implementation of a much higher minimum wage in some places with better 
technology for observing these things. You can match uh, employers and employees. Uh, you can observe them over time. Uh, and I'm wondering if in 10 years, we're going to have a little bit more solid evidence rather than taking it on faith uh, that the minimum wage has uh, either a positive, negative, or negligible effect on unemployment. What do you think? I mean, I think I think it definitely is an interesting possibility, but I think it's still, you know, there's a lot of other things happening. We're about to have a presidential election. There's a lot of policy changes that could also, as you say, like economics is really hard to isolate particular variables. I think it'll still be very hard to isolate that variable. Do you think the change is big enough in terms of the, the magnitude of that change is big enough that we'll be able to actually see some kind of correlation? I think the fact that the magnitude of the change is so big makes it more likely that we'll actually learn something. And I should add as a quick caveat, and by way of full disclosure, I myself don't actually favor this policy, right? I don't think it'll be worth it to learn this if it means that a lot of people who need jobs won't get them right. or if a lot of people who have jobs are going to lose them. Right. I'm just saying this might be the silver lining if it turns out that there are harmful employment effects of a much higher minimum right. wage. At least we'll know it. Right. Okay. Well, and it'll frankly settle like a. It's a fairly big dispute in economics, right? Over Huge. A, a larger increase in like what the and what what the effect will be, and there isn't really good evidence on either side. So we'll it, at least settle that dispute. It's a huge debate. It's yeah. a debate that ranges across theory. Uh, it ranges across the empirical evidence that we have to this point. It's sort of. Um, is a debate that includes arguments of the short-term effects versus the potential long-term effects. We just don't really know. But my sense of it is that it'll take time. But because the magnitude of the change is so large, we might actually learn something this time. Or at least, if in fact it does have a harmful employment effect, at least I hope that we learn that and that we're then flexible enough from a policy standpoint to reverse it, to recognize the problem um, and to not make the mistake again, you know. So anyways, it's not perfect, but you know that's, that's the best we can do sometimes, and that's how we learn. Moving on to today's show, here's what we've got on the agenda. On the show today, first up, we talk to the FT's U.S. Markets Editor, Robin Wigglesworth, who's got a recent article about the ways in which alternative data, which can also be called quirky, weird data, are being used in investment strategies. How is it found? How much does it cost? Who's using it? He talks to us about that, and then he sticks around for a discussion of U.S. earnings season. After that, our colleague John Authors, the FT's chief investment commentator, interviews Meb Faber, author of a new book called Invest with the House, Hacking the Top Hedge Funds, where he discusses the strategies of the world's most famous and aggressive active investors. Stick around. It's going to be a fun show. And now joining us in the studio is Robin Wigglesworth, our U.S. Markets Editor. Hi, Robin. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. So you've written a recent piece about uh, the use of big data in new investment strategies. Everything from sort of really crazy things like social media data to satellite photos of what's happening in China. Take us through like how this has emerged like, what, and, and the kinds of firms we're seeing using this sort of information. 
It's a fantastically interesting area. And people in the investment industry have always used data, but they typically have economic releases, corporate balance sheets, you know, the cliche of Warren Buffett sitting there looking through, you know, the earning statements. But we suddenly realize there's so much information out there in the world and creating more information all the time. I think something like 90% of all the data in the world was created in the last two years. So it's just more and more all the time. So people are finding new techniques to, first of all, just manage that data deluge, but also find signals you can maybe trade there. So, you know, back in the day, you might have sent some junior analyst to the local Walmart to see, you know, what's the football footfall like? Do they have lots of buyers? Now you can actually just have satellites scan the car park to see how many cars are parked there. And we, there's so much of this is because we are now like leaving essentially electronic records of everything we're doing, right? In a way that you didn't used to be able to really track our activity, like as consumers, for example, um, as widely as we do now that we have devices in our pockets all the time. No, it's it's everything from some app downloads to you know government records. I mean, they're not putting all our health records out in public, but pretty much everything the government does now goes online somewhere. You don't have to go down to a musty old archive to find lists of lobbying records, for example. But now you can actually actually crunch that electronically to find out which companies spend most on lobbying. How do they do? Do they have an edge in M&A? Do they get more contracts as a result? And just quite systematize that and automate it into the investment process. How uh, democratically available is the stuff that these companies come up with? I mean, do they mostly sell it to specific clients who pay for it and then it's expected that they don't distribute it more widely? Or uh, in some cases, I think they use it to create their own indexes and then they become known for uh, the company that tracks, you know, trading in shipping containers and things like that. That's a good question. I mean, they all have different models. Some will send a report, almost like an investment banking report, saying this company we think is going to have a good quarter because X, Y, Z, because of app downloads or whatever. Others will actually plug that data into a machine-readable form, and the more advanced hedge funds or asset managers will have the API and just route it straight into their investment process and their own sort of black box how they do it. i mean for example some will have an index as a chinese satellite company that creates sort of an index that tracks of activity in the chinese economy from satellite scans of industrial sites across the country so that's the way that you know they have an index and other people do very bespoke individual things other people you know have a sort of you enter into a system you know what happens when there's War in the Middle East, strife in the Middle East, and the computer will spit out lots of information, having scanned lots of news sources. Uh, here's what happens to oil. Here's what typically happens to gold and so on. I've got a question about the extent to which all this data will lead people to kind of overweight the kind of information that is quantifiable and underweight the other things because the stuff that's quantifiable isn't the only thing that's relevant to the future performance of a company. If you have a corrupt leader uh, it could be that he's right now sowing the seeds for the demise of the company, even if the performance of the company right now is just fine. And if it is for the next two years, so I guess I'm, I'm wondering if all this data means that we're going to uh, start to kind of myopically look just at that and forget about other more fundamental or what you might even call human factors. Well, the interesting thing is that although there's a huge amount of interest in these alternative data sets, you know, when you talk to especially the more advanced hedge funds, they say actually what we have more success with is using some of these modern mining data mining techniques on old school data. 
it's not necessarily looking at satellite scans of farms to guess crop yields. It's actually using these machine learning techniques on old school things like financial tick data that we've had for a long time. So it's the, the advanced techniques are actually being used on, on the old stuff as well. And that is yielding at the moment better results. But there's still we're still at the early stages of this. There's, you know, this exciting thing now is it isn't just the kind of classic numbers that we can scan. It's unstructured data. So people are scanning, for example, millions of earnings calls all the time and using natural language processing to guess the confidence that a CEO has in his projections. So one of the weird signals is that when a CEO says, we think blah, 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 it signals a less confident outcome than when he says, I think blah, blah, blah. Are you guys bothered at all by the potential for these data mining companies to start infringing on privacy or what we would traditionally conceive of as our right to privacy, right? Because like there's one thing in Robin's piece saying that now some of these companies can track how many people attended an individual soul cycle class, like not the aggregate number for a month, but Tuesday at 10 o'clock with, you know, uh, Miguel as the instructor or whatever, like it can it can track all that perfectly. Maybe I attended that. I don't do sales cycle, but like let's say I did, or let's say Shannon did. Like they would know where we were at ten o'clock on Tuesday morning. And it wasn't at work; it was a soul cycle. I mean, I think that is the issue with a lot, with you know, every company that is looking to monetize their data. I mean, you know, you should sort of you should know going in <laughs> when you are, especially when you're doing things where you're using some kind of electronic sign up or you're using an app. You know, I, I feel like at this point your expectation should be that there's you're being tracked. So when I talk to you know like the marketing companies that talk about this, you know the big emphasis is on you know anonymized data. So yes, they know that ten people were in that class. They don't know that it was you, particularly Cardiff Garcia. But I you know I think we should all be a bit skeptical of of sort of just just how easy it is at this point if you have you know two or three overlapping sources of information. It's probably pretty easy to find you throughout the day. Yeah, I, I talked to one fund that talked about this in credit card details. And credit card is detail is sort of the gold mine because basically the data, the better you are close to an actual transaction, the better you can get retail sales, what companies are, you know, where people are buying. So that's sort of what people are very excited about. But he said that actually companies aren't third party providers are not very good at scrubbing the personal information from those all the time. So the ways to anonymize the data, but sometimes if you so wanted, you could basically unscrub that scrubbing. And that is clearly something we should be a little bit concerned about, that you know people will have a very granular understanding and view of what you, Cardiff and Shannon, are spending your money on on any given day. Yeah, and I, I don't want to just harp on the negatives. I mean, this can make all of our lives a little bit more convenient. Right. I mean, this, this trade off is something we talk about all the time. But in this case, it makes the lives of asset managers more convenient. Right. It doesn't do anything for me, but it does unleash the potential for somebody to be able to track me a little bit more carefully or at least more than I would want, more than I would be comfortable with. Anyways, it's a fascinating topic. Robin, while we've got you here, uh, let's switch to earnings. Expecting yet another year over year decline uh, in the first quarter. This would be the third in a row. Are there any glimmers of hope uh, this earnings season? 
Well, I guess hope is relative. I mean, the fun thing with earnings is we see this pattern every quarter. You know, companies kind of whisper, oh, you know, maybe we're not doing that well. They lower their expectations and lo and behold, they beat the forecasts. Yeah. So they do that. But this year is pretty unusual in that, you know, they've talked down earnings so thoroughly that pretty much the only great good thing we can say about it is the expectations are low. They're Com- very low. Companies are like the annoying kid in sixth grade who always mopes about saying, oh my God, I probably flunked that test. And then he always gets an A plus, mm. right? That's yeah. kind of what companies are doing here. Right? Yeah, except they're probably saying, oh, I probably failed and they're getting a C. <laughs> right. <laughs> and we saw that. I mean, JP Morgan reported yeah. this morning, right? Yeah. Um, and again, it was one of those beat expectations, not as bad as forecast. Yeah. You know, it's not it's not the most resounding because give you the most confidence frankly. no exactly i mean we're, we're expecting on the whole roughly an eight percent year-on-year decline in earnings which is clearly not great companies will probably beat that in aggregate the issue is what are they going to say about the rest of the year i mean a quarter is a quarter what we really want to know is what happens over the next sort of 12 months and that's you know something that you know, you have some pros and cons. You have the dollar isn't as strong as it used to be. So that's going to be a, a plus. Uh, the economy is not great, but it's certainly not bad. I mean, the recessionary fears have certainly faded. So hopefully this year won't be too bad overall. On the other hand, you know, I wouldn't pile my all my life savings into that fact either. <laughs> yeah, I mean, something that's been hard to work out too is uh, the effect of the oil price. Yeah. Because for you know the first year, year and a half after the oil price started to decline so dramatically, everybody kind of expected it to be a fill-up for U.S. consumption. That hasn't played out, which doesn't mean that it won't play out at some point. In the meantime, what you've had is people saving a little bit more of the money that they didn't spend at the gas pump, which has hurt the energy sector, which in turn has hurt the banking sector, which made loans to the energy sector. And without the kind of compensating benefit uh, to other parts of the economy, the parts that rely more on domestic consumption, I wonder if that will finally reverse this year and might provide a kind of an unexpected boost, especially if wage growth, modest though it's been, continues. Well, yeah, it's quite true. I mean, there's this, uh, it was the the dog that didn't bark, as it were, the, sort of the consumption boost from falling energy. One thing we have seen is the savings rate has improved. So on the whole, if you look at the U.S. consumer and in the abstract with a sort of satellite scan from space, it looks pretty good. I mean, inflation is incredibly low. Wage growth is not going amazingly, but it's growing. Unemployment is very low. And, you know, the savings rate is high. And at some point you will filter in. I think that people are permanently scarred a little bit from the financial crisis that there will probably have been a, a secular shift in how Americans spend. They won't go you know, going crazy with a credit card uh, just because they suddenly got, you know, an extra of 50 bucks in their wallet at the end of the week because of lower oil prices. But I think there are reasons why people shouldn't be too gloomy about the U.S. economy, certainly. Right. What about the impact of uh, the global economy uh, on U.S. on U.S. domestic companies? Because it's not just the transmission through the dollar. Uh, it's also whether or not growth accelerates uh, in the rest of the world or if it continues to be very sluggish. I forget what the exact share is, but quite a high share of U.S. revenues come from sales overseas. Uh, what about yeah. that? No, so it's an interesting thing because on one hand, you know, the developing world is roughly half the global economy now. And the last time the developing world had a, a sticky patch in the late 90s, it was less than 20%. So clearly it matters. 
the thing is for me, I, I just don't think it really matters your average guy in Wyoming or North Dakota or California. I mean, there are things like the dollar, but if the dollar goes a lot stronger and, you know, uh, U.S. multinational makes less money in India, is that really going to force them to kind of slashing jobs in the U.S.? I, I don't really think that happens. And the interesting pattern we've seen is that, you know, whenever we have a big sell-off in financial markets because people are worried, say in last August and earlier this year, we talk about financial conditions tightening because you know, stock market sells off, people have less wealth because they own stocks. Uh, bond yields go up, so borrowing costs go up, and talk, people talk about tip the economy to recession. The U.S. economy has basically completely shrugged off those TIG big financial condition shocks. So I think the conclusion should be, and we shouldn't be too strong about this, but the U.S. economy is more resilient than, frankly, what a lot of people in financial markets believe. Yeah, and May, I guess I guess the other thing we should acknowledge here is that when we talk about earnings, it's not like this homogenous category, right? right? There's different sectors. One of the one of the kinds of combinations of contradictory forces that are exerting themselves on companies now are that they might have higher wage growth. Um, they might have to pay higher wages if, in fact, the labor market continues to tighten. But their pricing power is limited by a weak global economy, and it might continue to compress margins. On the other hand, if people in the U.S., if workers are making more money, they'll have a little bit more to spend, even if the savings rate is a little bit higher. So it might just be that you have some sectors that start to struggle more than they have to this point, but other sectors will improve uh, more than expected as well. Yeah, we'll have a, it won't be a uniform economy. I mean, energy is going to be in the doldrums. Even if energy prices recover quite strongly, I don't think we're going to see a massive spurt of investment in the shale oil industry anytime soon. But, you know, U.S. consumers doing well, even banks, U.S. banks aren't actually that exposed to energy they're not going to it's not the savings and loans crisis at all you know they'll gather this they'll take their knocks and move on with incredibly wet in good shape after the crisis so I, i think we'll see that that play out quite closely in 2016 robin wigglesworth u.s markets editor of the ft the article on alternative data is investors mine big data for cutting edge strategies robin thanks for being here man no thanks for having me and before you disappear what is your long-form recommendation for our listeners? So I came across a piece by Eric Belchunas at Bloomberg. He talked about the Napster moment for the asset management industry. It's related to the fact we've seen a huge shift of investors from putting money into active funds, where they get charged high fees, to low-cost exchange-traded funds and index trackers. And he just ran the calculations so just how much is this going to eat into the profits of asset managers and it looks pretty nasty and he compares it to the impact that Napster and file sharing had on uh, the music industry. And when I think of Napster, I think it was free and then it was forced to shut down. So maybe not that dramatic. <laughs> no, but, but it, it was <laughs> shut down and still look at the profits of their recording industry and they never recovered. Right. And ETFs are just growing and growing and growing. Thanks for being here, man. Thanks for having me again. Here's John Authors with Meb Faber. Meb, thank you very much indeed for joining us on Alpha Chats today. You're very well known for some great work you've done demonstrating that costs tend to trump everything else when it comes to investing. It doesn't matter what asset allocation you do within reason. If you pay too much for it, it's going to cancel everything out. Now, that's generally taken as an argument for passive investing. Your latest book, Invest with the House, is how you can copy some of the world's most famous, aggressive, 
active investors in the hedge fund world. Square that circle for me, please. There's a famous quote by Jack Bogle who says something along the lines of, he's like, the, the question isn't active or passive. The debate is actually high fee or low fee. Hmm. And there's nowhere in the world that's more high fee than hedge funds. And the typical fee structure, you know, 2% management fee, 20% performance fee, that is a massive cost to investors. Now, that doesn't mean these fund managers aren't some of the best and brightest fund managers in the world. They are often, as in any industry, the best talent is attracted to the highest compensation. And so um, what we wanted to do when we looked at sort of this idea is we said, um, you have to make two assumptions. One is, is the market efficient? And can you identify active managers ahead of time? And we think the answer is to both is yes. If you can't, then, right. you know, just stop recording now because then no one will believe it and you go index and that's that. But if you think you can, then we think um, I had a hypothesis was this is a very fertile ground to start mining for ideas and ask the question, can you track these managers through public filings? Okay, and just to be clear, you're not just looking at their performance, although that's obviously important. If you look through the book, in every case, you're looking at their process as well, and you have to be convinced that it's not totally due to luck before you decide there's somebody you want to clone. Is and, that right? And this is an area where you can't just be pure quant. Um, right. Because there's a lot of domain expertise that you need to understand a little bit about hedge funds. And so there's some pros and cons of looking at what these managers are doing. So for a little background, the, the, any manager in the U.S. has to publish their holdings if they have more than $100 million once a quarter. And then that data, the SEC publishes online 45 days at the quarter end. So it's a bit delayed. But um, it's you really want to be following the long-only stock picks. Shorts don't show up. Mm. Derivatives don't show up. And if you have a high-frequency trading group, that's also going to be misleading because the positions only come out once a quarter and they're delayed. So you really you want to be looking at the Warren Buffetts of the world, people right. that are stock pickers, mostly their long positions, and that are going to hold these for not just months but quarters or potentially even years. Okay, so you're not looking at the uh, quantitative guys who have hundreds of stocks and who turn over quickly. We've got nothing against such people, but this is not a strategy that will work with them. How do you deal with the issue that they only publish every quarter? I mean, is there a risk that you're still, even if you're getting people who are relatively long-termist, you're still not going to get to that stock until a lot of the juice has already been squeezed out of it? You know, so we actually used to go do this by hand, which was the most torturous thing on the planet. And now the good news is there's enough software out there that you can test a lot of these ideas. But I had that question. I'm a quant. I said, look, is it possible to even track these guys? You may be buying what they don't even hold anymore. And so it turns out if you simulate buying the, uh, the stock picks of their portfolio each quarter, and we added on an extra five days just to make sure that the enough time to have the positions and took this all the way back to 2000, how would it perform? And so we were totally open to what the data would say. And the classic example we give is Warren Buffett, you know, because most people are very familiar with, with Warren. And he, if you take his top 10 positions and equal weight them, you can weight them how he does, but we just equal weighted for simplicity's right. sake. He's outperformed the market by about 5 or 6% a year since 2000. That would put him in the top 2% of all mutual funds in the country. And the best news about this is very low turnover. Um, and even better is that uh, you don't have to pay him anything. 
Right. There's no management fees. You can manage it tax exempt. You could put it in your IRA. You could just trade the brokerage costs. So it's a wonderful way to track a lot of these managers. It actually has outperformed Berkshire a little bit, not a whole lot, but it has outperformed Berkshire because um, you're not getting all the other stuff that comes with owning Berkshire, private companies, insurance business, et cetera. But it turns out for that style of manager, it's a great way to invest. Uh, and or just briefly talking about Warren Buffett, it's extraordinary. That was since 2000 to a point when he was already by far the most successful investor out there. And many people have said that he was beginning to lose his curveball. And even at that point, you even if you'd only got wise to him at that point, you would have done that well by following him. Right. And so there's been actually been some academic papers lately that have followed up that have taken it all the way back to the 70s. So you can actually go to the SEC reading room in D.C. and find all the 13F filings, but they only do digital to 2000. <laughs> so right. I, I, I didn't want to go spend any too much time in the SEC reading room. But, but here's, here's one of the challenges is that if you invested in Buffett since 2000, again, massive outperformance, one of the best performing managers in the entire mutual fund space. However, he's underperformed this clone, what we call them clones, has underperformed the S&P seven of the last nine years. And so the vast majority of this outperformance came in the early 2000s. So how many investors you know, that we would know could sit through seven of nine years underperforming the market? Very few, right? right? That, that if, I, if I was that manager, I would have got fired three, four, five, six, seven years ago. Two years of underperformance already, um, you know, would, would start to generate some questions. And that's the challenge of being an investor and sticking with someone who has, would have put you in the top 2% of managers is being able to stick with them through a full cycle. And that's hard for most people to do. Now, let's talk a little about the actual stocks that you found as you went through the 13Fs in the in the book. One or two names leap out. Apple was not exactly an undiscovered name, and it's in a lot of these big guys' portfolios. Valiant, you've got Bill Ackman in there, but it wasn't just Ackman who took a bath on, on Valiant. A lot of financials in there, I guess, because you're, they, they show up, tend to show up as value. Was there anything that particularly surprised you um, about the stocks that that these guys are holding at the moment? And what kind of lessons does the Valiant experience have? So a couple notes. One is we used to look at this historically and often found that a lot of the names the managers would own, despite the fact you consider most of these managers value guys, we would find a lot of the names would be pretty close to all-time highs or, or higher than you would expect for pure value names. But you always find some interesting my, – my favorite are the managers who have very esoteric names, the Seth Klarman of the world, uh, Canel, who have these names where I look at the portfolio and say, I don't even know what seven of these ten stocks are. Right. To me, that's more fun. I don't know if it performs any better, but the ones that make me nervous are a lot of the hedge fund hotel names where you see just replicated across every portfolio – um, because you have some concentration risk, you know, when things go poorly and these guys all need to sell. And one of the findings we found was that the top holding, the number one holding actually didn't perform as well as holdings two through five or, or five through 10. And we think a lot of that reason is, is because by the time it gets to be the largest holding, it's not really their best idea, but rather it's because it's appreciated so much, um, and become the largest holding and, and may just be the, the heaviest weighting and Apple kind of is in the space, one of the largest market cap com companies in the, in the world, uh, very easy to allocate a lot of capital to. So it gravitates. If these guys have a billion, five billion, $10 billion, 
they can't wait in these little fifty, hundred million dollar market cap names anymore. So in particular, I like the names that are a little more unique, but that's just that's just me personally. Now, one final question on on this approach. Um, you've talked to plenty of people at family offices or endowments or whatever who do do something very similar to what you're suggesting in the in this book because they have those the resources necessary to do it. Is there any way it could be made practical for those of us who don't follow the markets, who don't invest for a living to do this? Can this be turned into an ETF or anything similar? Yeah, well, first of all, people don't do it on their own. You know, it, it's pick out five or 10, read the book, pick out five or 10 managers they like. You know, we've named a few, Buffett, Klarman, uh, Tepper. You know, these are guys that are easy to track and, and do it on your own for just the cost of one commission. Hmm. Um, two, yeah, I think I think it makes a lot of sense as a managed portfolio. You know, you want uh, certainly allocation any one manager runs the risk of them going through a nasty divorce, getting hit by a bus, getting, um, uh, you know, very comfortable in their wealth and not having the drive anymore. So diversifying across a handful of managers we think makes sense. But even if you bought holdings two through five, ten managers, you know, that's a that's a reasonable portfolio for an individual to manage. But we think a product like an ETF can make a lot of sense as well as it checks that box as we talked earlier as being low fee. Okay. Now let's just talk about one other very interesting issue. We're in the middle of earnings season now. That means buyback season is coming up. We've had a long period now when dividend investing has worked. Miller and Modigliani might tell you it shouldn't work, but it plainly has done for a while. What is a sensible way to go about capturing uh, any alpha, any returns that are available from big buyback companies? How does one do this? If company wants to use its cash, there's only five things it can do, and, and only five. It can pay a dividend, it can start to buy back stock, it can reinvest in the business, um, it could acquire other companies, so mergers, or it can pay down debt. And that's it. And then the goal of a CEO is to optimize the best mix of that for shareholders. And so when companies get to a certain size, they don't have a choice often but to distribute that cash, and investors love it. And historically, dividends and buybacks are a great way for investors to get cash flows. It's historically been great factors for investors. And the others are often seen as value destroying. So mergers um, and, and certainly um, and acquisitions. So a couple of things. What you mentioned um, on Modigliani is that Finance 101, dividends and buybacks are the same thing. Excluding taxes and valuations, they're the same thing. And most investors, I I feel like, really don't understand that. And starting in the early 80s, there was a structural change that let companies have safe harbor from buying back their stock. So buybacks went from very little at the time to now, um, in any given year, usually greater size than dividends on aggregate. So roughly half of all cash payouts. So if you look holistically at dividends and buybacks, what we call shareholder yield, uh, net buybacks is important because you want to make sure that you account for issuance for a lot of these tech companies. Not just people are covering option grants or whatever. Yeah. So, you know, a company, for example, could have a 3% dividend yield, but be issuing on the right hand 3% of shares a year and actually have what we would call a negative yield. So if you look at the combination, so dividend stocks in the US yielding two, maybe 3%. Um, if you focus on a buyback fund, it'll get you maybe 5%. But much more interesting, if you focus holistically, you get those yields combined and end up in the high single-digit yield, um, whereas a lot of dividend funds actually have a negative buyback yield. Right. And so historically, if you sort on these factors, we did a book on it, but O'Shaughnessy and many others have, have written on this, 
it's a much better way to sort on companies. It's particularly important now because as we've had this environment where investors are focused on yield, hmm. there's nowhere to find yield that and dividends have done wonderful for the past 15 years. You've had high dividend stocks move from historical 20%, let's call it valuation discount to the broad market for the first time ever to a valuation premium to the overall market. And that's something you really don't want. You don't want high yielding dividend stocks that are very expensive. And you don't have to believe me. You can pull these up on online on Morningstar, look at a lot of these funds. And that's because flows change factors. Right. You know, people rushing into stuff can can change the attractiveness of an asset class. I guess let's talk though about the biggest criticism of buybacks. Buybacks have a have a bad name these days. If it involves a company that doesn't have any idea any bright ideas for actually investing in the company, investing their company's cash in the real world, and it's already an overvalued company, then a buyback is simply wasting company, wasting shareholders' money buying overvalued stock. So the critical thing is that you have to have the value screen before this is going to work. Is that right? You know, Buffett says something along the lines of, he's like, look, there's no better use of capital than if a company's trading below intrinsic value to buy back shares. Hmm. And it's true also on the converse, if you're a company that's more expensive. So you have to have some sort of objective framework for buying back, valuing your company, whatever it may be. Buffett uses price to book. You know, he says he'll buy back Berkshire if it gets down to 1.3, 1.2 times book. The problem is a lot of these CEOs on aggregate, the buybacks are timed very poorly where it's cyclical. You'll see buyback, not only buybacks, but also M&A activity tick up and peak near market tops and then drop down near at, at market bottoms. However, if you look at the subset of high conviction buybacks, you know, over 5% and particularly over 10%, those are often historically almost always conducted at large valuation discounts to the broad market. So we say certainly with the buyback approach, but also with the dividend approach as well, or any reasonable investment approach, even with shareholder yield, you have to have a valuation screen. So whether you screen for cheap stocks first and then look for shareholder yield or screen for shareholder yield, then screen for cheap stocks. In either case, you want you want the cheap, not expensive. Okay. And I think that's a very appropriate note on which to end, Meb. Whatever happens, don't buy stuff if it's too expensive and don't pay too much for the privilege thank you very much my pleasure and that is the end of the interview portion of today's show but now shannon and i are going to share our long form recommendations shannon as always you first all right i'm recommending an article called swim bike cheat from uh, this past weekend's new york times it's by sarah lyle and it's about a cheating scandal in uh, triathlon. Triathlons. Triathlons. So basically, there was a woman who won a triathlon in Canada and was subsequently discovered to, it seems very likely that she cut the course. So basically, she didn't complete the full running portion of the course. And now it seems that there's been a couple other races uh, where she probably did the same thing. But it's it, the way she got found out is, you know, essentially you get these timing chips and her timing chip had, she said, had fallen off. Um, but now in races of all kinds these days, there's all sorts of photos, right? There's spectators' photos as well as the timing mats that the race organizers themselves put down. Other athletes who are skeptical 
of her her appearing to have come out of nowhere to win, you know, kind of went through and very painstakingly pieced together like the record of the race and like showed it just it didn't seem possible she could have won it. There was another piece in the New Yorker, I think a, a year or two ago, about this dentist in Michigan who sort of had was very famously had famously attempted to complete marathons or claimed to complete marathons in all 50 states. And it turned out like he had cheated on half of them. He actually made one up. So there's this whole weird subculture that happens with races of people cheating. But now it's triathlons. Well, triathlons or marathons or endurance events. What's interesting right now is that because of technology, we actually have ways of catching these things that we didn't before. This is like something out of a sitcom. Like where somebody starts the race, gets in a taxi, goes to get a pizza, right. and then gets back in the taxi and goes to the very end of the race and, and then ducks crosses in, it. Right. It also makes you wonder uh, why. Right. And I, I think, I mean, this this story, the the woman who's accused, you know, declined to be interviewed, you know, has vociferously defended her, her winnings that she didn't cheat. But it, it does sort of start to look at a bit you know what how, how this happens why it happens and also why it's considered such such an egregious uh type of cheating versus say performance enhancing drugs uh, which you know obviously are also of a big you know big issue in things like cycling um and other sports but it's kind of you're looking at these as two evils you know at least with that you're actually competing and completing the the thing versus this just seems to be you know, it, there's a particular effrontery for those who have worked really hard to complete you know, this very tough event. Uh, so anyway, it's a, it's a good read. It's you a good can't read. cheat yourself if you're, you know, if you're doing it to get in shape, you're not going to get in better shape well, by cheating. Right. And ultimately, these are all amateurs too, which is why it's also kind of crazy because you're really, in the end, you're kind of racing against yourself. And so yeah. if you're not doing it, what's the point? So you, I won't speculate on motivations. Anyway, um, what is your long form recommendation, Carter? Mine is an article by Matthew Weiner the uh, writer, producer, and sometimes director of Mad Men, our favorite TV show of all time. It was written about a year ago in Fast Company, uh, and he talks about uh, his struggles with rejection uh, in his earlier years and in the years in which he was pitching Mad Men. Something I didn't know is that one of the companies that rejected Mad Men was HBO, where he was working at the time. And it took him a while to get it to get it accepted, uh, and then it took a while for it to actually end up on the screen, something like seven years between when he started working on it and when it actually showed up. But there's something specific that I like about the article because it's not a typical article about how you have to persevere in the face of rejection, although that's certainly true. It's actually about the cruelty, using his words, the cruelty that he showed himself during that time of rejection. Um there was a period of self-loathing um, and uh, writing paralysis precisely because he felt that he hadn't accomplished anything good by an age when he thought he would have been a more successful person given all his hard work. And he says that's his one big regret is that he would have been kinder to himself. So in addition to uh, all the usual conventional stuff about having to persevere in the face of rejection and you know getting through difficult artistic struggles, which everybody confronts at some point, especially if you're in an artistic profession, there's also the reminder that we should all be nice to ourselves, that you shouldn't always be comparing yourself to uh, the successes of your friends or your rivals or your peers, that it's okay to struggle for a while. Um, and anybody who is successful had that period. Thus endeth our self-care session. Indeed. Indeed. It's becoming a, it's becoming a repeated theme <laughs> here. But that is the end of today's show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Shannon, take us home. 
Uh, thank you so much. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Let us know what you thought of the show. You can give us a call at 917-551-5012 and leave a voicemail. You can also send us an email to alphachat at ft.com. You can also go on iTunes to leave us a rating and review of the show. Let us know what you think, and it helps other people find the show. We're on Twitter. I'm at Shannon Pry, S-H-A-N-N-O-N-P-A-R-E-I-L, and Cardiff is at Cardiff Garcia. And we put up links to the topics we've discussed and our long-form recommendations at ft.com slash alphachat. Shannon, you can use big data. You can use computer hacking. You can use private investigators to try and figure out what it is that makes Amy Keene, our producer and editor, so awesome. But in fact, you'll never be able to replicate that unique synthesis of magical properties that she represents. Thanks for everything, Amy. And thanks to our listeners. We'll be back next week with another edition of Alpha Chat. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Bryan, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.